before we open God's Word, let's pray. Father in heaven, you know our hearts, and you know how much we need your Word to speak to us. We are tempted to believe all many things in this world. Sometimes our own consciences will indict us, but Lord, would you stir up your Holy Spirit that our consciences would be used well tonight, that we might be excused before you, free from guilt, free from the burden of sin, even as we trust in Christ and encouraged and uplifted to walk with him. Lord, there's weakness that stands to preach and weakness that sits to hear. Come and work in spite of us for your glory, for the good of your kingdom, and even for the sake of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Our text tonight is Romans 3, verses 5 through 8. Hear God's word. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Amen. All men are like grass, and all our glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Paul has been showing in these last several verses of chapter 3 and all of chapter 2 and even part of chapter 1 that none of us is righteous. We need the righteousness that's offered in the gospel, which Paul told us is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The salvation that's, that we need that's offered to us by faith in Christ, is, it's, it's not salvation that comes through the law of God. It's not salvation that comes through the various signs that he's given to his people over the ages, like circumcision or Passover, all of the Old Testament things that we've talked about over the last several weeks. You couldn't participate in the Passover and make sure that you're circumcised and memorize all of your Old Testament catechisms and somehow expect a place in the kingdom of God just by virtue of participation. And in the same way, we've translated it to the New Testament era as well. Just because you are baptized and participate in the table of our Lord and memorize your New Testament catechisms and your Westminster catechisms and do all the right things that Presbyterians are supposed to do, none of this guarantees your salvation. All of these things in the Old Testament and in the New point to our salvation. All of the Old Testament signs foresignified Christ all of our New Testament signs look back to Christ who's already come, and we're reminded of what God has done for us. But these things do not save. And Paul is still 
He's getting to the end of this portion. You can see it coming. But he is still anticipating more objections from that hypothetical Jew that he's been arguing with since the beginning of chapter 2. Paul, Paul is considering, so after chapter 2 where he kind of cut down so many legs of their arguments. No, you have the law, that doesn't save. You've been chosen, that doesn't save you. You have circumcision, it's valuable, but that doesn't save you either. And he arrives at chapter 3, considering in his mind, okay, after everything I've just said to them and all, all the things I've taken away from them, what might still come up in their mind? And last week we began to track verse 1, right? This question that comes up in the Jews' mind. Well, If circumcision doesn't save me, then what value is it? Well, what about those unfaithful people he talks about in verse 3? What what about them? Doesn't their unfaithfulness to this promise that God has made mean that God's promise is null and void in the end? Tonight, in these few verses, Paul is drawing out, it, it, it appears sort of as two more objections that really amount to one whole objection He's drawing out one more argument from his imaginary opponent. And as we work our way through, I want you to to think back and be able to track through and recognize how progressively weak these arguments have become. Well, we have the law. No, that doesn't save you. Well, God chose us. No, that doesn't save you. Well, each one of us has this sign of circumcision. No, that doesn't save you. Well, then, then... well, then what this means is that God's really unfaithful. No, Paul says. They're, they're working their way through and, and slowly getting to the end of themselves and their arguments, and Paul finally brings it to an end tonight in verses 5 through 8. So much so that, that the final objection that we get in verse 8 is so ridiculous that its mere presence and utterance is its own answer. That it's, it's so absurd to ask that question at the beginning of verse 8, that Paul doesn't even have to respond to it because it doesn't make any sense. It's just that ridiculous, even in the mind of an unbelieving Jew, that suggesting it sweeps it aside. Let's get right into it. Look at at verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. What shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? We have to think this through. You know, when Paul's jumping between thoughts that he's having and thoughts that he anticipates his opponent's having, we have to keep it straight. Remember back in verses 3 and 4, Paul, Paul made it clear that the unfaithfulness of so many of God's chosen people, even in the Old Testament, their unfaithfulness did not nullify His faithfulness or glory. Look back at verse 3. This is the opponent, right? The opponent argument. What if some were unfaithful? Does, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, Paul tells us. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Essentially, Paul uh, has declared that that all the unfaithfulness in the world, all the wickedness, all the sin that runs rampant over God's uh, world that He's created, everything that's become stained with sin, these things can never overthrow God's glory. Let God be true, though everyone else were a liar. If everybody's lying about God, He says God's still true. 
And so for that reason, some may say that the unfaithfulness of certain people serves to magnify the faithfulness of God. You remember the quote from, well, it's the end of verse 4 of chapter 3. It's, it's a quote from Psalm 51, that you may be justified in your words. In Psalm 51, David was recounting his own sin and confessing it to God. And he gets to verse 4 and basically says, you are right, O Lord. I am a sinner. He's declaring God's righteousness in, in God's own declaration over David as a sinner. And that is where the questions of verse 5 arise. If our unrighteousness serves, as it were, as a foil to the Lord's righteousness, is it proper and fair for God to inflict wrath on us for our sin and wickedness? Is it, is it right if, if my sin makes clearer the glory of God, is it really okay for Him to then punish me for that which served to His glory and honor? That's the arrogant question that they're asking. One thing that my family loves about the Delta, I think the girls, all of the girls, love it more than me, are the, the sunsets, right, and all the colors. I much more prefer the, the, the late night stars on a clear sky. But it has to be clear and dark in order for the stars to appear. That's the train of thought here. If God's glory, like a star, shines forth so brightly against the darkness of our sin, and it does, it does, shouldn't we be rewarded with something other than condemnation? Aren't we helping His glory to move higher? Isn't our sin contributing to the brightness of God's glory? We must understand how reprehensible such thoughts are. We must understand how truly horrid such a train of thought is before our holy God. Paul gives us his common there in verse 6, by no means, some of you may have God forbid or may it never be. And that's strong, that phrase at the beginning of verse 6. But the parenthetical at the end of verse 5 is fascinating. He does this in several places in his letters. He's defending himself at the end of verse 5. The idea of sin in some way benefiting God's glory is so repugnant to Paul that, that, that he puts extra distance between himself and this hypothetical question that he's asked at five. Shall we say that, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And it's as if Paul stops his whole argument and goes, by the way, I'm speaking like an unbelieving man. This is not the thought that I'm having in my heart. I would never suggest something like this to you. He's articulating there. He's, he's sh showing us that he's, he's anthropomorphizing this, this carnal heart. It's, it's the heart of a man who trusts only in himself and who, who trusts only in his own wisdom. You know, man-centered arguments like this abound in the world today. Well, if God's all-powerful, why doesn't he just save everybody? 
That's spoken in ignorance and foolishness. Somebody that does not know God's revealed will. Doesn't know the Bible. Well, if, if I'm forgiven, it doesn't really matter how I live, right? Because God's erased all of my sin and everything I'll ever do wrong, and so I can just do whatever I want. Again, spoken in foolishness and ignorance and pride. Someone who's never spent time studying the Word of God or giving it careful thought. Maybe we hear variants of what's spoken here in verse 5. Well, if, if my sin magnifies God's grace and glory in some way, then shouldn't I keep on sinning so that God's glory and grace may be that much greater in the eyes of the world? Maybe you wonder with me, how could someone possibly get to this point of questioning God and leaning into sin? Hopefully to you, it seems like such a foolish thing to suggest these silly questions. Dr. Duncan says that, that, that sin is willing to accept anything except repentance, and it will do anything to stay alive. That's what's happening in the argument that Paul's having. The, the, the hypothetical Jew keeps coming back, and because of the sin in his heart and the pride in his heart and his unwillingness to submit to the Lord of all creation has been clearly articulated in Romans 1, his sin is refusing to bend the knee, is refusing to turn away. And so the only way for him to go is into more and more foolish arguments. As foolish and stupid as these questions in verse 5 are, that they show the nature of sin. Sin fights to stay alive. Christian, even your remaining corruption will, will pull tricks like this. Your sin's going to whisper to you, I'm not really that bad. Hey, if, if, if you lean into me just a little bit, if, if you sin in this way, then you'll have an opportunity to repent. And isn't that what God wants you to do? These are lies. They're foolish. They're stupid for us to believe things like this. Indeed, the Lord wants us to repent, but He doesn't want us to leap into sin for opportunity for repentance. There's enough sin in each of us to repent till the end of our days. We don't need to add more to it. These are foolish questions that sin asks, that unbelief asks. And what's Paul's answer to it? Look at 6. Right? The question there, is God unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? By no means. For then how could God judge the world? There's two main thoughts here. First of this, Paul is declaring to us, by no means is God unrighteous to inflict wrath on unrighteousness. This is really a question about the relationship between God and sin. If they're suggesting somehow that, that sin should remain so that God's glory and righteousness is accentuated, there's really a question being asked about the relationship between sin and, and God. So let's make that clear. Our, our confession is very helpful on these points. This is from uh, Confession of Faith, chapter 3, on God's decrees. 
In paragraph 1, it clearly states that God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. So, so everything, everything that has ever happened, ever, ever in any direction, everything that has happened or is happening or will happen, everything without qualification comes to pass according to the ordination of God. And then there's some qualifications. One of the big qualifications, as I'm sure you are having in your mind right now, is that God is not the author of sin. So sin falls underneath his ordination of all things, but he's not the author of it. If you can figure out how to explain that, you come see me. I'd really like to know the details of how this all works. How do we know that he's not the author of sin? Because John tells us in his first epistle that that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Plenty of other writers in the Old and New Testaments affirm this, that God is without sin, that he's not the author of sin, that he, he cannot be in any way connected, related to sin, except by dispensing wrath upon it. But then you move forward a couple of chapters in our confession of faith, and you have this idea that God's ordained everything, but he's not the author of sin. And you start to wonder, okay, well, what's God's relationship to sin as it transpires in history? Well, after ordaining everything, and it's hard to talk about ordaining in time. Nothing happened before or after him ordaining it. It happened in eternity past. So that's really at no point. My goodness, our brains are going to explode if we try to think about this too much. God sees to the sustaining and the ordering of everything that he's ordained. It's called his providence, right? This is, this is Confession of Faith 5. God, the great creator of all things, does uphold and direct and dispose and govern all creatures, all actions, all things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and unchangeable counsel of his own will, to the praise of his glory, to, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Everything. Everything that he's ordained, and now that is in place and moving, everything is working to his glory. That's the, the primary end and telos of everything that's ever happening, is that God would receive glory and praise. And later on in chapter 5 on providence, the divines make clear that this sustaining work of God extends even to the fall of mankind into sin, and even to all the sin of angels and men. And in his wisdom, even these things serve for his glory. You think about it like this. How powerful is our God? How mighty is our God? Even things that come about through sinful means and ways will serve for his glory and the good of his people in the end. He will have total control, total dynasty, total, total rulership over all things to his intended purpose, which is his glory and the good of his people. This is the error that these people misunderstood. This is, this is the error, rather, that they were executing. They misunderstood the relationship between God and sin. That we must never believe, just, just because sin in, in a very mysterious way, fits in 
to the providence of God and everything moving toward his glory, just because it fits in there and just because it is ultimately used for God's glory, this never makes sin permissible. For sin is everything that is against God. We can't use sin for good. God can. He will. He has. We can't sin and hope to find good things come out of it. We have not that power. So let's ask it again. Is God unrighteous? Is He wrong to inflict His wrath on unrighteousness and sin? By no means. In fact, it is because God is righteous that He is bound to punish evildoers. Sin has brought upon every human being guilt that binds us to the wrath of God. The wages of sin is death. And this is essentially what Paul means in the second thought here in verse 6, where he reminds us that God is the judge of the world. If God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on unrighteousness, then how can he be the judge of the world? And that sentence, that question makes sense. Indeed, if God was wrong to judge wickedness, well, then he couldn't be the judge of the world. But, but the, the implication here is that God is the judge of the world. And so the, the, the previous thought is impossible. God is the judge of the world. Therefore, it, he, he's not unrighteous to inflict wrath on us because he's the judge. There's an interesting thing here that, that many commentators talk about that Paul doesn't go into a, a deep proof of God as judge. You know, he doesn't deviate into this explanation of God being judge. He just simply asserts the truth. God is the judge of the world. It's similar to how he does it back in chapter 1 where he talks about um, the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He never really justifies God's right to do these things. He simply states God's right to do these things. I want to think about two, two thoughts here. On the one hand, I need us to recognize that God is judge. Paul is intending us to think about this when we get to this phrase. God is the judge of the world. We do not live on our own. We do not live subject to our own laws. Each one of us is the creature of God, our creator, and we are subject to his authority alone. And one day he will judge everyone according to his law. And it's just like Tim said this morning, on that day, for sinners like us, there's only one safe place. It's in the cross of Christ where wrath has already been poured out. And so it's important for us to remember this, that God is judge, and that means that judgment is coming. And if God is judge, that judgment will be righteous and, and perfect, which means as sinners, we must find refuge. And the only refuge to find is in Christ. But second thought here attached to verse 7, verse 6. John Murray points it out. He says sometimes, sometimes the answer to gospel objections is clear proclamation. 
I think I'd actually change him just a little bit and say, I think almost always the answer to gospel objections is clear proclamation. What do we mean? Well, Paul is spending a lot of time in chapters 2 and 3 seeking to convince the unbelieving Jew of his need for the gospel. But he doesn't, he, he doesn't stop at every single little point and explain all the minutia of his statements. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath upon unrighteousness? And Paul answers clearly and simply, rather quickly even, no. God's the judge of all the world. How could, how could he be doing this incorrectly? There's no way, because he's the judge. The answer to the objection in Paul's situation is not this long, drawn-out diatribe about, you know, sin and, 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 and its relationship to God. We live that to the Westminster divines, right? Y'all are, that, you're supposed to laugh at that one. That's, that's... Paul doesn't go into all these details here. Paul simply proclaims the truth. And it's a wonderful principle for us to see. Sometimes we'll spend time teaching false views and and articulating and refuting why they're wrong. But more often than not, you'll see this in our church, we mostly just proclaim God's Word as simply and clearly as we possibly can and trust the Lord to work. Clarity is its own style. It's the way that God's designed it to be that we, it's presented simply with illustrations and application and imperatives attached to it, and then we walk with God. One of you recently reminded me of the, the whole um, training, you know, in restaurants, how to recognize counterfeit bills, right? You don't get, you know, whatever, a million counterfeit bills and, and try to understand every single place that each of these individual counterfeit bills is wrong. What do you do? You study the real thing. And that way, if something that's not the real thing comes to you, you can recognize it. And that's essentially what, what, what this idea for Murray is teasing out. What's the answer to, to an objection to the gospel? A proclamation of the truth. You need to know how things are wrong and, and how to answer them. But even Paul, of all people, simply just states true things to counter the arguments of his opponents. Paul continues to press the matter. Um, remember, he's trying to get the imaginary Jew to to the end of his arguments. He, he wants the Jew to have no more legs left to stand on so that he might see his great need of the free righteousness of the gospel. Look at 7. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? In a sense, Paul's really just restating what he's already raised in verse 5. But there's a lot more uh, arrogance and presumption in it. I mean, you can almost hear it. If my lie you know, serves to... God's glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Jeffrey Wilson said, in the boldness of its questioning of God's rectitude, this reveals an attitude of mind that constitutes the very essence of ungodliness. Why am, why am I being condemned? And Paul boils it down for us in verse 8 with his final question. Why not do evil? So that good may come. Do you understand how ridiculous that is? I mean, like, think about it. That it, it doesn't even make sense. Uh, let me go over to this apple tree and pick some grapes. 
That is a nonsensical statement. It's the same kind of statement he's making. Why not do evil that good may come? Let me go over here. I'm going to look for some figs on this bramble bush. This doesn't make any sense. Paul's reduced the reasoning of the Jews to a conclusion that is absurd. It's a conclusion that would even be shocking to his opponents. And that's how he's refuting their whole argument. So consider the trajectory that we've been through, even just from the end of chapter 2 into this portion. Paul says, circumcision can't save you. The Jew says, well, then what's the point of circumcision? And Paul says, well, it was meant to point you to the promises in the covenant. It was meant to help you find salvation. And the Jew comes back and says, yes, but so many people have been unfaithful to those promises. Doesn't that mean that God's promissory signs and the Passover and, and, and circumcision, doesn't mean that, that they're false and that ultimately God is also false and unfaithful? Paul says, no. No, in fact, any of our unfaithfulness just proves that, that God is right about us and he's right about our need of salvation. And the Jew comes back again. Well, then shouldn't we stay unfaithful so that God can keep receiving glory for being right about us? We'll just keep doing evil so that good may come. Again, to Dr. Duncan's point, we see that sin's desire is to do anything but repent. It leads us into stupidity. This is why you look around the world sometimes and you wonder, why do, why do people that don't know God act so dumb? It's because that's the trajectory of unbelief. That's the way it goes when you seek to push against the Creator. You move into senselessness and foolishness. Ligon says that sin will call into question doctrine. It will call into question God's fairness. It will call into question God's existence. It will call anything into question as long as it does not have to repent. Paul says that his opponents had wrongly suggested that, that this is the way that Paul thinks and teaches. That's that sort of aside at the end of verse 8. Some people slanderously charge us with saying this. And almost as a sort of a, a case study very quickly there at the end, their condemnation is just. He's affirming that, that God is a righteous judge who condemns wickedness. He condemns the people that are making these stupid arguments. He condemns the people that are suggesting that these are Paul's arguments. When we get into the next passage, it's going to open up a little bit more and, and be a little bit more universal in scope. Before we get there, I just want us to remember tonight as we've looked through these verses, do you, do you remember Paul's main goal in this whole section that we've been in? You remember at the beginning of it, in the middle of chapter 1, it says, In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What's Paul doing? Paul is trying to convince you that, that you need an alien righteousness if you have any hope of being saved. He is seeking to show the great need of every person to find righteousness in order to be delivered from the wrath of God which is going against unrighteousness and wickedness. And we have no righteousness of our own. Here in these verses, Paul has cut off now finally every false assurance that the Jew had. Nothing else is keeping them standing. There is nowhere else for the Jew to run. 
and for all of us too, there is nothing that can save you outside of Christ. But listen, that leaves room for the great news of the gospel. Simply that Christ has saved you. There's no salvation outside of Him, but there is full and free salvation in Him. That's what Paul's been trying to say this whole last chapter and a half. You're going to the wrong places. It's not in money. It's not in things. It's not in pride. It's not in self. It's not in feeling good. It's not in thinking that you've got enough good work stored up for yourself. You can't find salvation anywhere but in Christ. Only in Him. But certainly in Him. And so what? You know, it feels like we keep saying the same thing over and over again at the end of these sections. We keep saying, well, we talked a lot about sin. You need to remember that God saved you in Christ. So what? So let this fuel your whole life. Not just motivation to show up and hear sermons on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings and hear prayer meetings on Wednesday nights and to go to Bible studies during the week. Let the truth of the gospel Fuel your heart for all of your life so that everything you do is asked, is this for the good of Christ? Is this for the good of the gospel? How would Jesus want me to be here? How has he called me to act in this situation? What has he called me to say no to? And what has he called me to say yes to? And all of it is fueling your praise so that you seek God and you love him and you, you seek him in the word and you teach him to your children you live continually in obedience to Him and you fill your life up with Him. Why? Because He has saved you when nothing else could. We once deserved God's wrath, beloved. Would you praise Him for His mercy that He has saved you from sin and death and set you free in Christ? Amen. Father, for the sake of your Son, send your Holy Spirit to write the truth of your word upon our hearts that we may not sin against you. Help us, Lord, to see where we may have the tendency to trust in outward things, to trust in self and pride. Would you put these things to death and turn our eyes again to Christ, that we may rest fully in him. Teach us, Lord, how to walk with you, how to think clearly. Teach us how to repent and not lean into our sin. We love you, Lord. We, we praise you that you have saved us from death and hell and set us free unto life and righteousness in Christ. Would you knit us more to him even now and as we go from this place? We pray it in Jesus' name.